lot of talk in, in sociological, uh, sociological terms about generations. You know, you have the baby boomers, and then you have um, the, the, the baby busters, and then Gen X. But one of the generations that a lot of people are paying attention to, and we really should do it here at New Spring because our, our church is filled with millennials. The one thing about millennials is sort of concerning everybody right now, or in some cases it makes people happy, is that millennials tend to be a lot less oriented toward faith than other generations. And our series is called I Believe. Uh, millennials are less inclined to go to church, according to statistics, are less, in line, less inclined to think about God. But there's one statistic that really got my attention. Millennials are the first generation in American history, the majority of which believes in pure Darwinian evolution. That means God had nothing to do with it. And so in our series, I believe, I thought it might be good for us to hear from a millennial. About six years ago, when he was still in high school, my son Stephen announced to me one Saturday night on the way home from church that God had called him to preach. And I watched him grow up and finish high school and finish college. One thing about Stephen, all the time he was finishing school was whenever he would get a biology text or some science textbook, he would always bring it in to me and say, Dad, look, they're trying to prove evolution, but what they don't realize is they've painted themselves into a corner they can't get out of. And he always had so much fun explaining to me how that there was creation in science. Well, I thought he should tell somebody else for a change. Would you welcome my millennial son, Stephen? Hey, how's it going? Well, as my dad was just talking about, we're in the middle of a series called I Believe. And uh, last week, my dad kicked off the series with the keynote, uh, the keynote message called I Believe in God. And it's all about the importance of acknowledging God's existence in our lives and uh, talking about the ramifications of that. Uh, this week, I get to give the follow-up talk uh, called I Believe in Creation. And I am absolutely stoked about this topic. I've had a really fun time uh, getting to talk about it this weekend. Uh, but before I get into that, I think one of the reasons why when anyone gets up on a stage to talk about creation, I think one of the reasons why it can be pretty controversial is we live in a world that's got a particular, we live in a culture that has a particular worldview. And the worldview goes something like this. There's two worlds. There's, one world is the world of science, which is always, always, always based on empirical evidence. And it's always reasoned and it always has pure evidence for it. But way, 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 way on the other end of the spectrum, there's the world of faith, which is never based on evidence. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to call it faith. I guarantee you the majority of, of people in my generation feel this way. And when I have atheist friends bring up this, bring up this idea, I will agree with them on one particular point. I will agree with them that faith without evidence is a problem. I mean, if you don't believe me, all you have to do is turn on your TV at 3 o'clock in the morning. You're going to see some really weird infomercials for some really weird stuff. And what amazes me is there are actually people who call the 1-800 number who believe with all their heart that Miracle Spring Water is going to fix every problem in their life. There are people who call the number who believe that power balance bracelets are going to turn them into Kobe Bryant. There are people who, this is my favorite, there are people who believe with everything in them that Miss Cleo's psychic network is going to give them insight into their future. <laughs> do, do they have faith? Yes, they have a lot of faith, but that faith is misplaced. Why? Because there's a lack of evidence. But, but, and so I'll agree with my atheist friends that faith without evidence has, has problems. But one thing that I strongly disagree with my atheist friends on is this. The idea that faith can never have evidence, otherwise you wouldn't call it faith. 
Now, if you look up, uh, and the reason for this, if you look up the word faith in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says this, faith is a strong belief or trust in someone or something. Notice that nowhere in this definition does it say the words blind or unprovable. And, 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 and in fact, I don't know about you, but I actually try to put my strong belief and trust in people and things that have given me real reasons to do so. And what that tells me is that not only, not only are faith and evidence not separate entities that are at war with each other, but what that tells me is that good faith is oftentimes built on evidence and strengthened by evidence. And, and call me crazy, but when I say that I believe in creation, am I accepting that on faith? Yes, but not blind faith without evidence. Now, you could be sitting there and you're saying, Stephen, look, I know exactly where you're going with this, okay? You're saying that a supernatural being created the entire universe when you've never seen this God. I mean, you've never heard his voice. I mean, when was the last time that you two hung out? And yet you're trying to say that he's responsible for all this? And by the way, isn't science supposed to be the study of what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch, what we can put under a microscope, what we can put in a test tube? Okay, that's, that's a fair question. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen gravity? Have you ever heard gravity? Can you touch it? Can you put gravity under a microscope? Can you put gravity in a test tube? No, but I guarantee you, you've seen the effects of gravity. I mean, if the effects of gravity weren't visible, America's Funniest Home Videos would lose most of their material. <laughs> I mean, and, and gravity has also been kind enough to leave an overwhelming body of scientific evidence in the things that we can see, the things that we can hear, the things that we can touch, the things that we can put under a microscope and put in a test tube. So much evidence, in fact, that the things we can see prove without a shadow of a doubt what we can. You know, and call me crazy, but I think that God has left us in a similar situation because you know what? You're right. I, I've never seen God. I've never heard God's voice. I've never hung out with him, although someday I will. But I have seen the effects of God in this world as plain as the effects of gravity. And I, and I believe that God has left an overwhelming body of scientific evidence in the things we can see, in the things that we can hear, and in the things that we can put under a microscope in a test tube, so much so that the things we can see prove without a shadow of a doubt the God that we can't. And, 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 and you could be saying, saying Stephen, look, I, I know what you're saying, okay? And I know you're, you know you're preaching, and that's just, you know, that's just the way it goes. But I'm a very skeptical person. Well, put her there. Me too. I mean, my wife will tell you I'm a skeptical person. I'll tell you why. I need to tell you a story, though, about why she would say that. Uh, as you guys might know, last year a miracle happened. I got married. And... Uh, <laughs> The reason that I'll say it's a miracle is because I have to be the quirkiest person you have ever met in your life. Like, I'm really easily distracted. You've heard of ADD, you've heard of HD, or ADHD. I'm WWS, otherwise known as, wait, what, syndrome. I mean, <laughs> I am an extremely distracted person. And on top of that, I am the geekiest person you've ever met in your life. Like, if you, if you talk to me in the hallway and you want to have a conversation about politics or popular music or, or something like that, I can carry on a decent conversation for maybe a couple minutes, but I'm going to space out. But if you want to talk to me about The Force Awakens, man, we can go all day, all right? <laughs> Because, I mean, I am the geekiest person you've ever seen in your life. So that's why I say it's a miracle that I got married. But anyway, back to the story. So uh, right after Elle and I got married, uh, she asked me this really random question out of nowhere. She was like, Stephen, do you sleepwalk? And I was like, yes, finally one thing that I don't do that's quirky. 
And so I was like, so I told her without, I told her, I said, with no hesitation, no, I do not sleepwalk. And I knew that because I have no memory of ever sleepwalking, (laughs) which is kind of an oxymoron. But I mean, I I don't remember ever like waking up in a kitchen or someone finding me in an alley, you know, or something like that. So I was pretty positive that I don't sleepwalk. But then Elle was like, well, that's pretty funny because you sleptwalked last night. And I was like, What? And she said, well, I saw you. you. You got up out of bed while you were still like walking like a zombie. You went off towards the hallway. Then you went in the bathroom and then you walked out of the bathroom. Then you walked into the bedroom and then you started pulling that chain that turns the light on and off on the fan. And I had to physically get you to stop. You were doing it so much. And I was like, whoa. And I said, I said wait a second, did, did I say anything? And she's like, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure your exact words were something like, Uh, but but that that did not get rid of my skepticism because like I said, I am a skeptical person. So I looked Elle straight in the face. I said, look, I do not sleepwalk. I wasn't the one dreaming, you were dreaming. You must have have eaten something weird last night to dream that I did this. And she's like, whatever, but you do, I saw you. And then, but then a few days later, I, uh, I got up, I stretched, I did my morning routine, did my morning yoga. Actually, I'm just kidding. I, I believe in being flexible, but not that flexible. And uh, I, I walked down the hallway and I walked to the kitchen to get a bagel and cream cheese. And uh, when I looked at the floor, I was looking at a crime scene in front of my very eyes. Because apparently someone had left a spot of tea on the ground. Not a spot of tea, but a spot of tea. <laughs> Someone, this, this is what I was left with. Someone the night before, and I know for a fact this floor was clean the night before. Someone had walked into the kitchen, opened up the fridge door, grabbed a pitcher of tea, did a pouring motion like they were pouring into a cup, but they weren't pouring on anything. They were pouring on the floor and then put the pitcher neatly back into the refrigerator, shut the door and walked away. And I know it wasn't Elle because she would have had to crawl over me to even get to the kitchen and there was no sign of a break-in anywhere. And Elle just gave me this look like, gotcha. (laughs) Uh, Here's the deal. I I thought it was extremely improbable that I sleepwalked. I thought it was impossible. I thought it was crazy. I mean, I'm a skeptical person. I'm like, there's absolutely no way I can get up and walk around while I'm dreaming. But I was left with a situation in front of my very nose that I had that left me with no possible other explanations. And what I love about God is that I I believe that God has left a spot of tea on the floor, so to speak, and it's called nature. And nature, the science of nature, asks questions that only the idea of a God who created this world can answer. And today, I I just want to explore some of the evidence, some of the signatures of God and nature that point that direction. But after that, more importantly, I want to talk about what does the evidence for God mean? so first off, to talk about the evidence, you might, we need to start with the basic question. Where is the evidence for God? Which is an important question. Um, and Genesis 1 is really helpful for that. Because in Genesis 1, when you read the creation story, you read about God creating the things that are absolutely huge, even bigger than our imagination can possibly comprehend, like the stars and the universe and the planets. And then you read about God creating things that are on our level, like human beings, plants, and animals. And then I love how Genesis 1 pays attention to the small things. Over and over and over again in Genesis 1, if you read it, it talks about the small animals that scurry along the ground. The human beings were given authority over the small things. And I'm like, why does it say that? But what Genesis 1 tells me is if we want to find the evidence for God and nature, those are three really good categories to look at. The big things in nature, the things that are bigger than our comprehension, 
the things on our level like you and me and animals, and then the small things, perhaps even the microscopic. So those are the three categories of, anim, uh, of, of evidence I want to explore. And by the way, I'm just cherry-picking a few examples. There is a lot more literature out there. Getting ready for this message, my biggest challenge wasn't finding evidence for God. My biggest challenge was sorting through the huge amount of it and trying to find out what I can talk about in a 30-minute period of time. But let's just start out with the big things. What, what's the evidence for God and the big things in nature? Over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk a little bit about the universe, which the universe is pretty big. Um, to give you an idea of how big the universe is, our planet is just one planet in the solar system, right? Our solar system is just one solar system in the galaxy, and our galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies in the universe. That is how big the universe is. And one of atheism's best arguments against Christianity before the 20th century was this idea. The idea that the universe has always existed and will always exist. And the reason why that was a good argument against Genesis 1 is because atheists were saying, look, in Genesis, it says that the universe had a beginning, that the universe sprang into existence, but there's no scientific evidence for that. But then a guy by the name of Albert Einstein, uh, who was a brilliant physicist, also a brilliant hairstylist, uh, Albert Einstein, he was, uh, he was working on some equations in physics in 1915, and something really bothered Mr. Einstein. When he was working on it, he was thinking to himself, wait a second, these equations don't make any sense unless the universe is expanding. And it drove him crazy, because if the universe was expanding, that meant that at some point in history, the universe was at a point of infinite contraction and basically nothingness. What that means is that Einstein's equations were pointing to the idea of a universe with a beginning. But Einstein later on, he just wrote it off and he said, look, I'm not even going to go there. But 14 years later, a guy by the name of Edwin Hubble, which the Hubble Space Telescope is named after, Edwin Hubble was looking through a telescope one night in 1929, and he noticed something called Doppler shift, which doesn't sound very exciting. But he noticed that the galaxies were moving apart from each other and the outer reaches of space were expanding confirming with empirical evidence exactly what Einstein noticed. So scientists knew once and for all that the universe had a beginning. But this posed a problem because after 1929, a bunch of scientists and astronomers and physicists, they tried to get together and sort out mathematically and scientifically what on earth would it look like for us to explain scientifically how the universe could just pop into existence. And then you have the Big Bang Theory. Not the show, but the theory. And one thing I just want to talk about is even in 2016, there are two major problems with cosmologists saying that the universe came into existence randomly on accident. Now, the first problem is pretty obvious. In the world of physics, in the world of science and mathematics, we have still yet to discover any equation or any principle that could explain how matter can appear out of nothing. The mat matter is what you are made of, out of, and the chair you're sitting in is made of. There's, there's, no, there's no evidence to explain how matter can appear out of nothing, except when you're driving on the interstate and a cop car appears, but I'm pretty sure they've been there the whole time. <laughs> so that's, that's the first problem, but that's, th that problem is nothing compared to the second problem. And I came across the second problem with the Big Bang uh, while I was reading a book called The Case for a Creator, which is an amazing book. It's written by Lee Strobel, and Lee Strobel interviewed a professor at Messiah College. His name is Robin Collins. And uh, Dr. Collins uh, has gotten degrees in both physics and philosophy, and he spent his life studying both. And Dr. Collins, Dr. Collins said this. He said, the biggest problem with the idea that the universe just sprang into existence on accident is simply this. There are precise laws in physics 
that have to be precisely tuned for life to exist. And if you were to alter them even slightly, the effect on life would be catastrophic. Let's take gravity, for example, the, the force of gravity. If you were to stretch out a ruler across the entire length of the universe, which is billions of light years, one light year is 5.88 trillion miles. That gives you an idea how, of how long this ruler is. If you were to stretch out a ruler across the entire universe and make inch marks in that ruler, the force of gravity is so precisely set, it would be set at one inch in that entire ruler. You know what happens if you move it one inch to the left or one inch to the right? The effects on life would be catastrophic. According to Dr. Collins, any organisms anywhere near the size of human beings would be crushed. And that's just one physical constant. Let's talk about the cosmological constant. I'm still trying to figure out what this is. I'm still trying to get my head around this, but basically the cosmological constant refers to the energy density of empty space. And scientists across the board agree, if this were altered by even a small amount, the universe would not even exist today. Do you, know, do you want to know how precisely tuned the cosmological constant is? Conservatively, scientists have estimated that the cosmological, cosmological constant has to be set at one part in 10 to the 53rd power. That is a 10 with 53 zeros after it. There are that many options for what this could have been, and it had to be one, and it just happens to be the right option. But there's more. The, the, the force that binds a proton and a neutron together in the nucleus of an atom, it's called a strong nuclear force. If you were to decrease this force by one part in 10,000 billion, 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 the only element left in the universe would be hydrogen. That is how precisely tuned the laws of physics are. And the reason why this present, presents a problem for the Big Bang Theory is that randomness can't set dials this precise. It just can't. And, and, and astronomers keep saying, well, somehow randomness just created these precise laws of physics. But that is astronomically improbable and basically impossible. And, if, and what's funny, scientists have tried to wiggle out of this one lately by saying, well, maybe there's trillions of other universes out there, and we were just the lucky ones. The only problem with that is there's no scientific evidence that any other universes exist, except in movies directed by J.J. Abrams. So if you want to believe in the existence of other universes, you must be a really big sci-fi fan because science fiction is the only place where you're going to find it because real science has not confirmed the existence of any other universes, which means that the Big Bang only got one shot, one shot to get, to get these precise laws right with no direction, with no guidance. That takes a great, I don't know about you, but for me, that takes a great deal more faith than believing in God. But that's just the big things. Let's talk about an example of evidence for God on our level. Uh, before I got ready for this message, uh, when, I, when I thought about the way birds think, I, I always thought about finding Nemo. You know those birds that are chasing after the crabs and they're like, might, 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 yeah. That's how I thought that birds think. I, I thought the only thing birds think about is just pooping on my car and making a nest and just causing problems. But I didn't understand that birds are probably way smarter than me. They're geniuses. And on top of that, they're expert navigators. Did you know that there are species of birds that migrate all the way from Argentina to Canada and arrive in Delaware Bay over and over and over again just to feed on a specific kind of animal that's only there a specific time of the year? Birds are experts at navigating. And it's because of their migration routes. They go from one place in the world to another for, because of climate reasons. Now, 
The evolutionary explanation for how bird migration came into existence is simply this. Evolutionists will say that a species of bird starts out in a particular location or a group of locations, but over time it notices that if it flies to a cooler place in the summer and a warmer place in the winter, it's going to start to have better chances of breeding, better chances of feeding well, and better chances of survival. So the ones that, that migrate survive better than the ones who don't, and so they gradually move farther north and farther south and farther north and farther south. The only problem is I came across a species of bird that migrates every year from Alaska to Hawaii. There's one problem with that. There's nothing but 2,500 miles of ocean in between Alaska and Hawaii. You can't gradually, over thousands and millions of years, move gradually from Alaska to Hawaii because of ocean. And these birds are not natural swimmers. They're called the Pacific Golden Plovers, or in Hawaii, they're referred to as Kolea birds. These birds have an 88-hour flight nonstop to Hawaii, and they have just enough biological fuel to make it. And yet, over and over again, they're able to land in the exact same chain of islands over and over and over again. By the way, Hawaii is, most, is pretty much the most isolated chain of islands in the world. And these birds have no landmarks, nothing, other th nothing to tell them where they are on this flight, and they go straight to it. But that isn't even the coolest part. My favorite part of this is that this species of bird oftentimes lays four eggs in Alaska. And the parent birds, they wait for the eggs to hatch, right? But as soon as the eggs hatch, the, birds, the parent birds will take off for Hawaii. Terrible parents. <laughs> but they're, you know, the, the parents are just like, look, you guys just hatched, you're on your own. So they leave for Hawaii. But here's the miracle. The birds that have just hatched, they start to eat, and they start to eat some more. They have like a buffet of worms or something about it. I don't know. But they start to eat and eat and eat, so they build up and they bulk up, and they develop a lot of, they develop a lot of grams of energy that they can burn later on. And then about two months or so after they hatch, they take off for Hawaii. The only problem is they've never been there before. They've never seen Hawaii before, and yet they're going to the most isolated chain of islands in the world over nothing but ocean for thousands of miles when they have just enough energy to make it? That is a miracle. That is a miracle. But just, but just to give you an idea of how much of a miracle this is, the, the earliest estimates of human settlers in Hawaii is 300 AD. That means it took human beings 40, because, because human recorded history goes back to 4,000 BC, that means it took human beings 4,300 years to even know Hawaii exists. And yet these birds are able to fly directly to it when they've just been born and their brains are much smaller than ours. They're able to go straight to it. That is a miracle, an absolute, an absolute miracle. But so we talked about an example of evidence for God in the big things and then on things on our level. I want to talk about an, an example of God in the microscopic things. Now, I wish I could talk about irreducible complexity. That's one of my favorite, my favorite uh, pieces of evidence for God in the microscopic world. But I like DNA even more. And because of time, I just want to talk about DNA. Because as far as small things go, DNA proves God more than anything. And the reason why I think DNA proves God is that DNA is not just a thing. DNA is information. Uh, I, I was watching Lee Strobel, who, who wrote the book, The Case for a Creator. He was giving a presentation at Saddleback Church, and I was watching his illustration online, and I was like, I got to use this illustration. It's awesome. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal it from him real quick. Wherever you are, Lee, thank you, man. Uh, but Lee was talking about DNA, and he used this illustration. He said this. He said, if you're walking along the beach, and you see ripples in the sand, is that a pattern? Yes, but that's a pattern that's created by nature. You know the wind and the waves and the rain, they did that. 
But if you're walking in the sand and you see the word Stephen loves L written in the sand with a heart around it with an arrow through it, you're not going to walk away and say, oh, the waves did that. Why? Because nature can produce patterns, yes, but it can't produce information. And that's exactly what DNA is. In fact, it's, DNA is an information coded in a language. In the, in the English language, we have an alphabet of characters. DNA has four, four, four letters that represent chemicals in its alphabet. The four letters are A, C, T, and G, which represent adenine, cytosine, thymine, and guanine. Now, these letters or these chemicals have to be arranged in a very specific way so that DNA can communicate to a cell to tell it to build proteins. And that's a big deal because proteins are the building blocks of cells and cells are the building blocks of life. So basically, DNA is the blueprint for you and the blueprint for me. It's an amazing thing. But what really, what, what really just blew me away is that in an interview with Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, which he's a, he's, he's a guy who's been studying microbiology his whole life, and uh, Lee Strobel interviewed him as well, and Dr. Meyer said this. He said, to build just one protein so that DNA can tell a cell to build only one protein, just one building block of a cell, you would need 1,200 to 2,000 of these four letters arranged in a very specific way just to do that. 1,200 to 2,000. Imagine the odds of that happening randomly. And when, 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 uh, when mathematicians took into account the odds of these letters arranging themselves that way, as well as communicating information for the folding of proteins, the odds of one protein, just one building block of a cell, forming on its own is a staggering one chance in a hundred thousand trillion, 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 trillion. That's a 10 with 125 zeros after it. The chances of just one building block of a cell forming on its own. Do you want to know how many of these proteins go into a minimally complex cell? Somewhere from 300 to 500. So 300 to 500 times this has to happen when the odds are astronomically against it. That is the reason why DNA is information, because it's able to tell a cell to do something that is astronomically improbable on its own. In fact, DNA has oftentimes been compared to computer code. Bill Gates said this. He said, DNA is like a, a, DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created. I find that interesting because in order for Bill Gates' company to develop software, they have to, develop, they have to hire intelligent coders to make it. And he's saying DNA is far more complicated than that. Did you know that in every cell in your body, which you have 37.2 trillion cells in your body, in every cell in your body, if you were to stretch out all the DNA end to end, it would be over six feet tall. And if you were to stretch out all the DNA in every cell in your body, you would have enough to go to the moon and back 88,473 times. That is how much DNA that you have in your body. Geneticist and molecular biologist Michael Denton, who's an agnostic, by the way, in his book, Evolution, A Theory and Crisis, he said this, a teaspoon of DNA could contain all the information needed to build the proteins for all the species of organisms that have ever lived on the earth, and there would still be enough room left for all the information in every book ever written. That is the efficiency of the information that is stored in you and in me. You're a miracle. I'm a miracle. Nature is a miracle. I don't know about you, but I've never seen God. I've never heard his voice, but he's left his fingerprints all over this world. And it cries out that he did this, that he made this, that he created this. The world is his creation. 
But this leaves a very big question. If all this evidence is so convincing, why doesn't our world just rush to support it? And that's a really good question. And I could just throw out the classic Christian answer and then just be like, well, it's because atheists hate everything having to do with God and they're in denial and yada, 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 yada. I could throw out that answer, but a good question deserves a good answer. And I, and I thought about this getting ready for this message. And because I want to give you a good answer, I need to tell you a story about a guy named Vanilla Ice. <laughs> now, now, if, now, if you know, if you know about Vanilla Ice, you will know that I, I think I've got my facts right. I think that Vanilla Ice was the first hip-hop artist to have a hip-hop single hit number one on the billboard in 1990. And the single was a little song called Ice Ice Baby. Now, if you know anything about Ice Ice Baby, you will know that at the very beginning of the song, there's this epic bass line that goes like, do, 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 yeah, yeah. So, yeah some, of you know, some of you know what I'm saying. So, uh, and... And here's the deal, this, this song was extremely popular. It hit number one, but there was a few guys with very elaborate hair and very elaborate costumes who were listening to the radio one night, and when they heard Ice Ice Baby, they were not happy. Not because they didn't like the epic bass line at the beginning of the song, but because they wrote it. And because that bass line happened to be in one of their most popular songs, Under Pressure, I'm talking about the group Queen, who wrote Bohemian Rhapsody and We Will Rock You. Anyway, they were really mad because someone basically stole their music. And so Queen threatened Vanilla Ice with legal action, and Vanilla Ice and Queen, it's a really odd, odd names, anyway. <laughs> Vanilla Ice and Queen had to settle out of court, and most likely Vanilla Ice had to pay a lot of money because of the copyright breach that he had committed. Why did Vanilla Ice have to pay a lot of money? Well, because of copyright law. Okay, what's copyright law based on? Copyright law is based on the idea that if someone creates something, then they have ownership and authority over it. If you want to know why the scientific community hates any evidence that points towards the existence of God and makes people who say they believe in creation look like second-class citizens, the reason why they will always do that and never change their mind is that they know full well that if God created the world, that would give him ownership and authority over it. And that is too much to accept for a world obsessed with the idea that it has authority over itself. If, if, if you were to strip the debate down to bare metal, that's really the debate we're having, is whether God has authority over this world or not. That is the, that, it, this is really a philosophical debate disguising itself as a scientific one. That's really, what, that's really the fight that we're having. Now, here's the thing. I think the reason why a lot of people remain atheists is that the only implication of God creating the world that they've ever thought about is simply the implication that he has authority over it, which is true. But that's the only thing they've thought about. I believe that there are more implications of God creating the world that if we were to examine them, it would make our perspective of God even, even wider. And even people who think that, think, think that God didn't create this world, it would sort of turn a light on for them. So I want to talk about a few other implications of God creating the world. First off, if God created the world, he has special knowledge about what he's created. What gets you frustrated in life? For me, it's calling tech support for any kind of issue. Because, you know, some people say the best way to immerse yourself in foreign language is Rosetta Stone. I think the best way to immerse yourself in foreign language is to call support for a company that's outsourcing. 
Because when you call, it's like, it's like, I don't understand what you're saying. And then you get passed off to someone else in a different department, in a different country. And then they pass you off to someone and they pass you off to someone. And then you finally get to the last person. And the guy's like, okay, I don't know the answer to your question, but I just need to take down a little bit of information. I need your name, your address, your social security number, your license plate, and your blood sample. And once I, once I get all those things, I'll get back to you ASAP. And then sure enough, three months later, you get an email saying, we still don't know the answer to your question, but thank you for contacting us. And if you could fill out a survey about how helpful we were, we would love for you to do that. Calling support is a really annoying thing, but I have this dream of calling support for a company and the CEO answers on the other line. That would be sweet. Like if your Facebook account crashed and on the other line you hear, uh, this is Mark Zuckerberg, how can I help you? I would be like, this is awesome. Like, can I record this conversation so I can have proof when I tell my friends? Or, um, or if, you, if you're having trouble with Windows and you call and you hear Bill Gates' voice on the other line saying, hey, I'm Bill Gates, how can I help you? Now, if it were me, I'd forget about the tech issue and be like, a million bucks would be awesome. Uh, why would it be cool to get the CEO on the other line of the phone? Well because since they created the company, they have an intricate knowledge of that company that goes beyond what common information says. They get, even just getting to talk to them would be a huge privilege because they have a level of knowledge that goes far beyond any, any, person you could have, any other person you could have called. I think as Christians, we don't even know the amazing access of information we have when we have a God who has special knowledge of his creation. He knows the intricacies of every single organism in the world. He has a special knowledge of this world. In fact, you know, what, this reminds me of a story in the Bible. Uh, you know, Moses, he's kind of a big deal. He, uh, he led the Israelites from Egypt to Israel. And one time God told Moses, he said, hey, I need you to go talk to Pharaoh. I need you to tell Pharaoh how it is. Tell him to let my people go. And Moses, obviously, he got a little bit nervous. And Moses was like, uh, Moses was like, Lord, I, I'm, not really good. I'm not really good with speaking. I get tongue-tied and I just, I don't know how to speak. And yet you're telling me to do this? but I love God's answer. Then the Lord told Moses, who makes a person's mouth? I love that. Because here's the deal. If I have trouble speaking to defend my faith, I know I can go to the God who created the human mouth. If I have problems with my mind not thinking right, I know I can go to the God who created my mind. And if I have problems with, and most importantly, if I have problems with the brokenness in my heart and in my soul, I can go to the God who created both of them and saved them both. And he's got a level of special knowledge about those things that goes far beyond any other common information. And the reason why I need a God with special knowledge is I don't know about you, but I'm pretty messed up. I've got anger issues, I've got anxiety issues, and they feed off each other and they turn me into a person I don't want to become. And my brokenness runs deeper, my, my brokenness runs so deep that the self-help section at Barnes & Noble can't help me. I need a wisdom that is greater. I need a wisdom that is greater. And if God created the world, he has a special knowledge that I don't know about you, but I need it. I need God's wisdom because it's so much greater than common knowledge. Let's talk about the second implication. If God created the world, he has a purpose for it. You know, one thing I know about creative people is when they create things, it's for a reason. Art is meant to be visually appreciated. Music is meant to be listened to. Speeches are meant to be heard. Creative people, they pour, they pour all their energy into something because they have a reason for it. If God did create us, why would we expect him to be any different? You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians 2.10. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. 
He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Here's the purpose. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We do have a purpose. We do have a reason. And there's, and there's such a huge contrast between believing that we are the product of an accident and believing that we're the product of a designer because if we are the product of an accident, we don't have any purpose in life because we were created from a purposeless process. But if we were the product of a designer, we do indeed have a purpose. You know, th- this, this reminds me of a story in the Bible about a guy by the name of Gideon. If you ever read the book of Judges, it's a really great book. It's got a lot of great stories in it. But in the book of Judges, God has to rise up a hero over and over and over again to save Israel from enemies. And one of these heroes' name was Gideon. But what I find interesting is that Gideon grew up in a time in Israel where most of the people in Israel worshipped idols. Yes, there was a small minority that worshipped God, but they were outnumbered. And so Gideon grew up in a culture where people just didn't know what to believe. Sounds a lot like America to me. And so Gideon grew up wondering, is, am I really the product of a special creation? Do I have a purpose in life? Do I have a reason in life? But God had a reason for Gideon's existence, but Gideon just didn't know it yet. And so Gideon, when we find Gideon, he's sitting in a hole in the ground, hiding from the enemy that's attacking Israel. He's hiding, and he's just trying to survive and get by. But then God comes along, and and God appears right to Gideon, and he says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. I would freak out if that happened to me. (laughs) But here's the thing. Gideon's doubts went so deep that when Gideon responds, he just tells God, where have you been? If you do exist, if you are the Lord, then why have so many bad things happened to us? Someone has to have a lot of doubts if the God of all creation just appears right in front of them and the first thing they want to talk about is all the reasons why they didn't believe in him. Gideon had a great deal of doubts. He probably didn't think he had any greater purpose in life. He was probably just a product of just some chance. But then God, God tells Gideon, he says, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. And if you know the story, Gideon goes from being someone hiding in a hole to taking a group of 300 guys to face an army of 135,000. And God works a miracle and causes the enemy to fight against each other, and Gideon and these group of 300 guys chase after the enemy and run them out of Israel. This is my point. What changed inside of Gideon? What, what caused him to go from being someone who was hiding in a hole to charging after an army of thousands of people? It was simply this. If Satan can get you to think you're an accident, he can get you to act like one. But if God can get you to believe that you are a special creation with a reason, with a purpose, with a purpose for your existence, you, God frees you up to act like it. God gives you the ability to act like it, and he has a reason for your existence. That's what changed inside of Gideon. And that's what should change inside of all of us. God, if God created the world, he does have a purpose for it. Here's the third implication. If God created the world, he values it. You know, like I said, I I don't know a lot about creative people because I'm not one. But another thing I know about creative people is that they put a great deal of value into their work that not just anybody understands. Let me give you an example. On on the screen, you're going to see a picture of a journal. And this journal is called the Codex Leicester, or, or also referred to as the Codex Hammer. And it has a great deal of diagrams and a lot of notes scribbled in Italian. And uh, just, it's a very, very old journal that's seen a lot of years. Now, if you were to hand me this journal and say, Stephen, how valuable is this? I would take a look at the worn out pages. I would look at the cracks in the binding. I would look, I would look at it and say, this looks like it's been sitting in someone's attic for hundreds of years. Maybe it's a hundred bucks. I think a hundred bucks. 
But if I were to hand this to a fellow named Leonardo da Vinci, and he were, to, he were to look at me, if I told him that it's worth 100 bucks, he would say, are you crazy? Are you crazy? I put a level of scientific knowledge into this journal that no one else will understand. I put a level of design and intricacy and genius into this that was hundreds of years ahead of my time. $100? That is an insult, sir. That is an insult. And if Mr. Da Vinci were alive today, he would be pleased to know that this journal sold to Bill Gates in 1994 for $30,802,500. What made this journal valuable? The designer who put it together. If Da Vinci didn't write it, it's just an old journal that's got torn pages that's seen too many years. But because Da Vinci wrote it, that's why it's valuable. The same goes for you and me. Without a creator, without a creator God, our value does indeed come from what society tells us we are. But if we allow society to tell us how valuable we are, that's like asking me to tell you how valuable that journal is. It's because of the designer who has put us together that we are far more valuable than anyone else will possibly understand because we have a genius who put us together, who put a level of genius and design into us. That is what gives us our value. If God created the world, he values it. But this is my last point. And then we'll go home. If God created the world, he loves it. You know, if you were to to talk to a parent, right, that's got a few kids, and and you were to ask them this question, you were to say, why do you love your kids? And they were to answer you like this. They would say, you know what, I love my kids because, you know, they get pretty good grades, they've got straight teeth, and they don't talk back to me very much, and uh, they just seem, you know, they're, they're pretty easygoing. That's why I love my kids you would walk away wanting to call child services. (laughs) Because you would be like, whoa, 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 that is a terrible answer. Why is that a terrible answer? Because whether you're a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, whatever, there's something deep down inside of us that says, if someone creates something, like a parent creates a child, they should love that child simply because they're their child. You know, one thing that doesn't get said in church enough is that God loves atheists just as much as he loves Christians. Why? Because they're a part of this world. And John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. God loves everybody. And, 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 and here's the deal. God doesn't love people based on, on the, the fact that they dot every I and cross every T. God doesn't love people based on what they do, just like a parent shouldn't love their child based on their performance. God loves us all. There's only one giant difference between a Christian's relationship with God and an atheist's relationship with God. A Christian's relationship with God is two-sided. God loves us and we love him and that's why we're gonna spend eternity with him and that's why we have a wonderful relationship. An atheist relationship with God is only one-sided. God loves them, God is pursuing them, God cares about them very much. It's just that love has never been reciprocated and that's why there's a problem and that's why there's a, and there's a, there's a problem with their eternity and a, problem, and a problem in life. It isn't that God doesn't love everybody, he does. It's just that the creation and the creator have to be united for something amazing to happen. And you, you could have walked in a day and you're saying, Stephen, look, I, I am a total atheist, I, or I'm an agnostic, or I, I, you know, I, I consider myself religious, but I've never really had a relationship with God. If that's you, even if you've never acknowledged truly the existence of God, he has acknowledged you. And he loves you very much and he's, he's seen you throughout your entire life and he cares about every detail of you and he cares about you very much, so much so that he sent his son to die on a cross for you. He loves you that much because if God created the world, he loves it and you're a part of this world and he loves you very much. 
The only, the only thing that God needs from you is a yes so that he can come into your heart and change you from the inside out so that you can have a relationship, so that you can have God's special knowledge, God's purpose, God's value in your life, and God's love. I find it interesting. I think one of the greatest proofs that God exists is the fact that we all are chasing, basically, whether no matter what your background is, we are all chasing after answers, which is special knowledge, purpose, value, and love. And a creator God happens to be the only thing that can satisfy all four of those pursuits. That, in my opinion, is far greater than even the evidence of science. And maybe you've come today and you're saying, Stephen, I, I, I've been looking for God my whole life. It's just I've never found him before. Well, God is looking for you, and he loves you very much, and he sent his son to die for you. And today he wants to have that relationship with you. Will you all bow your heads with me real quick? You know, you could say, Stephen, look, that's, that's totally me. I, I want to have a relationship with God. I've heard you talk about God, and I've heard people talk about God, but... I want to know, I, I don't just want to talk about him. I want to know him. I want to know him. I want him to come into my heart and change me. If that's you, if that's you today, don't, don't wait another day. Don't wait two weeks from now. Don't wait a year from now. Today, make that decision to invite him into your life. And if that's you, I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer real quick. And these, these aren't magic words. These are just calling out to God saying, yes, I want you in my life. If that's you, I'm going to pray with you real quick. And you can repeat these words silently if you wish. Heavenly Father, I know I've messed up. I know, I, know, I know that I've sinned against you. But I believe that the blood that came out of Jesus' body on the cross paid for what I've done wrong. I accept you into my heart. Change me from the inside out. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if, if you just pray to receive Christ, you'll find in the seat in front of you a talk to us card, and you can fill that out with any information you feel comfortable with and check the box that says, I, received, uh, I, I prayed to receive Christ. You can take it back to guest services back in the lobby, and uh, they'll give you a little packet talking about your new relationship with God, and I hope you, I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you.